0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Quickly turn with me to the book of Acts this morning, the book of Acts. We're going to uh, pick up where we have been and look at uh, some more of this Acts of the Holy Spirit, as it should be called there, the book of Acts. And... uh, Look at that together. So, Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles with you and you found Acts chapter 2, if you'd be so kind as to stand for the honor of the reading of God's Word, let's read the first few verses together this morning and take a look at just the very first few, but we'll read the first 13 to get a running start this morning. It says this in Acts chapter 2 When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then there, and uh, there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are these not, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya and adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues in the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. Father, this morning we have spent time rejoicing in you, praising you, worshiping you in our fellowship and our singing together, our time with our children this morning, Father, and Now, as we approach your throne of grace through the word, I pray that you would make it alive in our hearts, not for us, Father, but for your glory, that we may grow to be like your son, Jesus Christ, and leave this place with a new understanding of you and of him and what you have done for us through him and through your Holy Spirit. To do that, Father, I ask that you make very little of me and very much of you that you may be glorified in this place today. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, when we last were in the book of Acts, I think it's a few weeks ago, we were finishing up the first chapter, and in that first chapter of Acts... We had seen Jesus return to his disciples after rising from the grave, if you remember. They had seen him physically alive. They had heard him uh, continue to teach and and preach just as he had begun to do those exact same things. They had uh, been told by him that he was going to leave again. Then in his absence was going to be this promised Holy Spirit that was to come. And that's where we ended up the uh, chapter one. In this time of their waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, they obviously had been excited about those things that Christ had done. Done and said because their numbers grew from the meager 11 or so with the women that were there to some 120 it tells us uh, that were gathered in that place in chapter 1 so so this number had gathered they had replaced, if you remember uh, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, they had replaced him with Matthias. That's where we left off last time. They had casted lots and replaced uh, Judas with uh, Matthias. They had been fellowshipping and communing together on a daily basis, it had told us in his word. And Then as chapter 2 starts, as chapter 2 starts, we see a very important change. We see a very important change in the dispensation of Christianity. You see, up until this point, church, the church has never existed. Uh, Up to this point, through Acts chapter 1, there was no church. The gospel message of Jesus Christ had primarily been spread through the Jews uh, and and the work in the the temples and those that were uh, believers in God and then through this meager group of Galileans, as it said in the, the passage that I just read, as they went about spreading the good news. The work had been done through this meager group. And now we see the followers of Christ that have been waiting on the promise. They're going to experience the fulfillment of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise from God. And, and within the fulfillment of the promise of God is born the church. Interesting, I didn't even think about it when I talked about seasons with the kids this morning. Even in God's uh, economy, everything has a season. And the season that we're looking at right here in Acts chapter 2 is the season of the birth of the church. And the message of Jesus Christ is about to go to the uttermost ends of the world. For the very first time, the message is going to leave home base and go to the uttermost ends of the world. And the body of Christ, the church, is born. And the body of Christ, the church, is going to take that message. Take that message. So let's begin our look this morning at the fulfillment of the promise. We'll only get a chance to look at the first point because there's something very interesting in the first four, verse, uh, first four verses of chapter two that connects the dots of past promises and past things seen in the Old Testament with the work of Christ and what's to come in the New Testament. We're going to look at that this morning to set up for you the idea behind this promise of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of the promise. The very first thing I noticed whenever I looked at this passage in those first four verses was the providence of God. God's providence in all of this. I don't know about you, but when I read things, the more I read things and the more I understand things, the more questions I have. I'm pretty simple minded. Most times, most times the questions come out like this. Why? Why? I feel like, what is it, about a three or four year old child? That that becomes their vocabulary? I guess I'm looking forward to that with my grandson. Somewhere around that age, their vocabulary gets really short. And you say, go pick up your clothes. And they go, why? You say, let's eat. They go, why? So turn off the light. They go, why? You ever experience that? You know, as I read this passage, there's some whys that come to mind. And one big one. There's one big one that comes as I read through the the book of Acts at the beginning. Jesus was with them. Jesus was there. They saw him for 40 days. and He says, I'm going to leave. I need you to wait. Well, first thoughts, why wait? Wouldn't they be more productive if they were doing something? But he said, wait, so I can live with that. But then he said, wait, because there's something coming. Why did something have to come? Why didn't it immediately come when Jesus left? Why was there a period? Has anybody ever thought about that? Why was there a 10-day period between his leaving and the coming of the Holy Spirit? And as I thought about that, I looked at the first four verses of this passage and realized that there's a connection in God's economy to everything that happens. Nothing's by accident. There's no time frame that's by accident. There's nothing that happens to us that catches God by surprise. He doesn't change the plan as he goes along. The plan, even for the promised Holy Spirit, was set in eternity past and was proclaimed in the Old Testament, believe it or not. Proclaimed in the work of Christ, believe it or not. We're going to look at that this morning. So let's look at God's uh, providence in this. See, The subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very much discussed subject. And very often it's a misunderstood subject. We hear terms like being baptized in the Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit or being slain in the Holy Spirit. We we hear these terms come up. The divide runs so deep over these ideas that whole denominations set themselves up, formed around their belief in what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit or slain with the Holy Spirit. There are entire divides within denominations and new denominations start just over this subject, just over this subject. So, so what is the promise? What is the promise that God made about the Holy Spirit? That when Jesus left to go to the Father, the Holy Spirit would come to them. That was a promise that we read in, in the first chapter. That the Holy Spirit would remain with them just as Jesus had been with them. In other words, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and it never says anything about the Holy Spirit leaving us. It does say we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but do you realize it never says the Holy Spirit leaves you when you grieve Him? See, He says He comes to indwell you, He's there. See that it also says that the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to be our comforter. How many of you are glad that the Holy Spirit come to be your comforter? See, you can think just in very short past in your life and realize that the comfort you felt in a situation in your life was all about God. That was the Holy Spirit working in your life. He also said, He also said the Holy Spirit would come to be a helper. And boy, am I glad of that! Like I'm going to be Punk's helper Saturday morning. I've already told him whatever you say, do. I'm going to do it within reason, Punk. But anyhow, I'm going to be his helper. I was so glad that there's this helper that comes alongside that comes alongside he you know, also said that he was going to be our guide how many of you know that boy it's tough to find the road sometimes you know it's difficult to find your way sometimes it's difficult to understand where you're supposed to be in your walk with god but the holy spirit's job is to come and help you guide that if you've been with us on wednesday nights we studied that not too long ago this Holy Spirit's God. And all those things are true. All those things are true along with so many other things. So many other things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. It says that he empowers us. He regenerates us. He illuminates God's word for us that we might have understanding. He produces within us spiritual fruit that hangs on our tree that attracts others to Jesus Christ because they see that fruit. It says that he helps us. It says he guides us. He calls us. He indwells us. All those things are true about the Holy Spirit. But how does all this happen? How does all this happen in our life? Yes, those things are true, but how does it happen in our life? See, this is where most of the contention comes between belief systems, so to speak, in the Holy Spirit. I believe it's important to understand how the Holy Spirit came to those who were gathered there in Acts, gathered together, those 120, and by doing that, we can understand how the Holy Spirit comes to us. I think the first thing that I noticed as I read it is I stopped and thought, okay, the Holy Spirit come to came to them, showed up there to them, and filled them. So, so what were they doing? So let's notice. What were they doing? What were they doing that this Holy Spirit would show up? It says there in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Church, there's a mouthful in that one. There is a mouthful in that one. The Bible says very simply, That they were in one accord in one place. They were gathered together. They were believing the same things. They were proclaiming the same things. They were having fellowship with each other. They were hanging out together, enjoying the presence of each other. And they were rejoicing in the things that they knew that were true. That's how they went from probably 20 or so people with the 11 and the women to 120 They fellowshiped together in such a way that others were drawn to them. What was the truth that they fellowshiped around? That Jesus died on the cross for their sins. One of the things that they rejoiced in the most was that he died on the cross for their sins, just as he said he was going to do. Another thing they rejoiced and fellowshiped around was the fact that he had risen from the dead three days later. Guess what? Just as he said he was going to do. You're going to notice there's a theme in this. He says that they rejoiced in the fact that he had appeared to them alive. He'd appeared to them alive and spent 40 days with them alive. Just as he said he would do. You're starting to see the theme? And see, now they were waiting. Now they were sitting and waiting in one accord, rejoicing in all these things. And they were waiting on this promise of the coming Holy Spirit. And they were doing it apparently with great excitement and anticipation. Why would they have great excitement and anticipation of being left alone and just waiting on a promise? Here's why. Because of everything else that Jesus said was true, why wouldn't this be true? See, in other words, they realized all the things that Jesus had promised had come true and they'd seen it with their own eyes. Why wouldn't the next thing he promised come true? There's a word in that for us, church. You know, God's made us promises. Sometimes we can't quite grasp a hold of those promises and hold firmly to them because we forget that he's been faithful to all the other things he's promised us. And these 120 realize God is faithful. And if he promised that there would be one coming, guess what? Get ready. He's on the way. You see, I believe there's a word in all of this for us. One of the things I believe that we need to understand is we need to gather together more often As brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to gather together in fellowship. We need to be in one accord and we need to do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be diligent, diligent about gathering together more often. We need to be diligent about taking every opportunity afforded to us to gather together as the body of Christ in each other's presence. And we need to do it in one accord We need to rally. We need to rally around those things that we know to be true, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, He was buried, He rose again, that He loved us while we were yet sinners. We need to rally around those things. We we need need to fellowship around the beliefs that we have in common. But you know what? (laughs) We also need to be gracious. We also need to be gracious in those areas where we're not complete in our thought processes and our walk. We need to be gracious with those who haven't quite caught up to us in our walk with Christ. You know, it's often been said, the church shoots the enemy and just leaves them for dead. We need to realize it's our job to bring those along that come with us. That maybe we're ahead of them on the walk, but it's through that fellowship that they catch up. And we need to be gracious in that. We need to realize that we need to hold absolutely firm on the essentials. There's only one God. There's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. There's only one way to heaven. It's through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. There's only one hope for the future, and that's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's only one hope that we'll have eternal life. It's the fact that He said we too would rise from the dead. The essentials, you need to be willing to fight for. But the non-essentials, we need to give grace. We need to be able to sit down at the table and talk about those non-essentials and work our way through it. We need. To have grace when we fellowship with each other. See, it's not about always being right. It's not always being right. What it is is about your walk being right with God. Sometimes your fellowship with someone else changes your walk to be more right with God. And we need to approach our fellowship time together with that. Then we can do as they did. If we gather together excited about those things that Christ has done for us, excited about those things that He's promised to do for us, we can look with great anticipation and excitement of what God is about to do, the promises He is about to fulfill. See, church, there is no reason that we shouldn't be the happiest people on the face of the earth. There is no reason whatsoever. Because God has already told us, whether we stay here, we win with Christ, or whether we leave here, we win with Christ. It makes no difference. Whether the storm blows, we win with Christ. Whether the storm passes by, we still win with Christ. What is there to be sad about? See, if we rallied around the fact that everything that is us and we are about is Jesus Christ, we should have the biggest smile on our face and the best song in our heart. We should have a skip at our step and others should want to know about it. How does that come? Fellowshiping together in one accord. But you know, it's not really about what they were doing that caused the Holy Spirit to come. Do you realize that? Even though they were in one accord and they were doing what they were supposed to do, notice what they were not doing. This is what caught my attention when I thought about the differences in the denominations and the fights that go on over this Holy Spirit issue. What is it that they were not doing? I just made up a list of a couple of things. Nowhere did we see that they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Did you notice that? Nowhere does it say that they were praying for the Holy Spirit to come. They never had a special worship service to entice the presence of the Holy Spirit. They didn't even sing 25 verses of their favorite praise and worship song, hoping the Holy Spirit would show up. (laughs) I noticed that, too. There was no falling out on the floor, jumping over furniture, mumbling words no one could understand, hoping someone could interpret. There was none of that. None of that. There was no picking out their favorite hymn. There was no shouting. There was, there was waiting. See, what he had told them to do, he said, they were simply to do exactly what Jesus said, wait. There's something to be said about waiting upon the Lord now, isn't there? Oftentimes, God lays something on my heart and I want to take off running, but God says, wait. Patience was not a virtue I was born with. It's a virtue I'm trying to gain. But God sometimes just says, wait. You know what I have found? It's in the waiting for God that I feel His presence the closest. It's in that time that I just want to go like a racehorse, full steam ahead. But God says, wait. It's in those times that I am strengthened. It's in those times that I come to understanding and I find out the race I was about to run was not the race God had set before me. But by waiting, I wound up in the right race and I was the right horse for the race. Had I started without Him, I'd have been the right horse in the wrong race. He said, wait. And it's in there waiting that God shows up and that God shows off. Don't you love it when God shows up in your life and shows off? I just love it when God shows up and shows off. I love it when God's presence just falls upon everything that we do as a church because we're allowing Him to do what He does best. Be God. <laughs> be God. It says in verse 1 that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, gives me a thought. The Bible says that this, this process, this time frame had fully come. It gives indication that there was apparently some time frame set in place. Have you ever had an order of things that you were going to do? Or maybe there was a schedule. Maybe you've been to a conference or a meeting. And they give you, on the day you arrive, this list of things. And at 10 o'clock, you've got to be here. And at 9 o'clock, you've got to be here that night. And at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, you've got this meeting. And tomorrow, you've got to be here. And there's this list. And if you're like me, after being away from home for a day or two at a meeting, you're looking at the last page of the list, and the only thing you're interested in is what is the exit time? What was the last thing I've got to be at, right? I want to know when the time has fully come for this thing to be over and me to find my bed. As Punk and I were talking about yesterday, I like to sit in my recliner or my couch in my bed. I don't know what it is about it. I could sleep at a different one, but there's just something about my bed. So I'm looking at the list. I'm looking at the last page going, boy, I wish this would hurry up and come. That's the indication that's given here when it says the day of Pentecost had fully come. It's almost like there's this list, there's this time frame. And when you look over there on the last page of the time frame, there was something that was supposed to happen on a particular day. Already set in place. It wasn't put in place because the believers had gathered together and prayed properly or worshipped properly or sang the right songs or read the right scriptures or did the right things. The time was in place regardless of what those gathered. Had done. There was a time. There was this time that was set. And it, it tells us that Pentecost happened when it did for one reason. Because that time had, had fully come. There, there are some who say that we should ask We should ask for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit to be sent. In fact, there there are entire denominational creeds. There are several of them out there that talk about how you get the the Holy Spirit. Let let me just read one real fast for you. I I had several, but we're short on time. It says the Pentecostal Creed. I pulled up the Pentecostal Creed. When you think about baptism of the Holy Spirit, you think about the Holy Spirit, my mind immediately goes to the Pentecostals and the things that they do with the Holy Spirit. This isn't a bashing of the Pentecostals. I'm just going to read their creed for you. It says this, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is an experience in which the believer yields control of himself to the Holy Spirit. Through this, he comes to know Christ in a more intimate way and receives power to witness and grow spiritually. Believers should earnestly seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. The initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. Anybody see a problem with that? See, there's only one big problem with that, quite honestly. They believe if you ask for the Holy Spirit, God will give him to you. When you receive the Holy Spirit, it will be evidenced by the speaking of tongues. But there there is a problem with that. None of that is in this. See the problem? Because it says the Holy uh, Holy Spirit's coming is an experience. It's an experience. To be experienced, there must be something you do to have the experience. And we've already seen the disciples, those gathered, did nothing. The Holy Spirit came at a time of fulfillment because God had planned that time. No, in fact, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was completely controlled by God and was accomplished only in His perfect timing. And how do we know that? It says the day of Pentecost came when the time had fully come. It is telling us that the completion of a set time that God had ordained had been fulfilled. God had chosen this time from eternity past. Not based on the experience of those in the present. You see, God has a timing in your life. And it's not based on the experiences of your life. It's based on His providence and sovereignty in your life. See, this can be understood by looking at the word Pentecost. There's a reason we use the word Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th. Whether it be 50th day, 50th thing, 50th something. The word Pentecost means 50th. We know that in this case it was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After Jesus had been crucified, after he'd been laid in a tomb, three days later rose from the dead, then he appeared to the believers, he stayed with them for 40 days as it says in Acts 1-3 I believe it is, then he tells them to wait, there's going to be this coming Holy Spirit, and then 10 days later... Ten days later, the Holy Spirit comes. There's something interesting about that ten days later, after he'd risen from the dead. Ten days after he'd risen from the dead falls on the day of the start of a feast called Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks to us means absolutely nothing, because we're not very learned on our Old Testament. But to the Jews that were gathered there, it meant everything. This is what caught my attention because it started on the Feast of Weeks. I started backtracking to the other things that happened in Jesus' life there at the end of his life. And guess what I found? There's some significance in each of those things also. See, to us it doesn't make much sense, but to the Jews it had both historical and prophetic significance in their life. Prophetic significance especially because they had been promised things in the Old Testament that had been prophesied and they were seeing them fulfilled in their very presence How do we know that the day of Pentecost was not just a random day? How do we know that believers hadn't figured out this secret formula that they could do to gain the favor of the Holy Spirit? How do we know that we too can have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Very simply, to answer this question lies in the understanding of God's providence in the timing of the sending of the Holy Spirit. In the timing, you see God's fingerprints all over. What happened in Jesus' life and the timing of the the presence of the Holy Spirit when you look at it in relationship to what was prophesied, how Jesus lived out, and what happened to those in that time. See, nothing in the economy of God happens by accident. There's not anything that's random. There's not anything that happens by accident. God's in complete control of all things that happens. And if he's not in control of those things, guess what? Then he's not God. So we have to understand that he's in control. It's important for us to understand that God is sovereign over those things. He has made choices and decisions and has a will that's going to be lived out. It is going to be lived out. And the simplest of these things, such as the timing of the day of Pentecost, should bolster our faith in who God is. And bolster our faith that we can hold firm to the promises he's made us for our future. How many of you are glad that God has promised there are things still to come for you? I know I am. I'm glad to know this isn't the end of it all, that there's other things coming. How can I have the faith to hold tightly to those promises? I can look back at His sovereignty and answer to His past promises. See, let's look at how we can know God's providence control when the Holy Spirit came. I mentioned, I mentioned the day of Pentecost happened, happened on the start of the Feast of Weeks. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God gave instruction to Moses, if you remember. He gave instruction to Moses for the people of Israel, for his people. That there would be these nine feasts, so to speak, that were laid out for the children of Israel that they would have each year in remembrance of God, in remembrance of his faithfulness, in remembrance of his holiness, in remembrance of what he had done for his people. There were these nine feasts that, that they were prescribed to do together for remembrance. And of those, three of those feasts, were done together in Jerusalem. Three of those feasts were to come together. So those three feasts are significant in the nine. What are those three feasts? You know some of them, Passover, First Fruit, and then the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost, believe it or not, even from the Old Testament. Look with me at these feasts and and how they relate to the day of Pentecost, and we'll do this quickly. If you happen to have your Bible and you want to flip to Leviticus 23, all of those are prescribed in Leviticus 23. I won't read much of that to you this morning. I know you're just dying to go home and sit on your couch this afternoon and read Leviticus. Everybody always loves to read Leviticus, but Leviticus uh, chapter 23 actually lays those feasts out for you. It starts, whenever it starts talking about the feast. the first thing that it, it projects out there for us, the first thing that it shows in the feast is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. We understand the Sabbath because we, we observe the Sabbath. We observe the new Sabbath, which is the Sabbath of the rising of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Jews at this time reserved the old uh, observe the old Sabbath, observed that old Sabbath on Saturday. But there was this Sabbath day that was there. So in Leviticus twenty three, it moves from the Sabbath day to the very next feast in the fourth verse, which is the feast of Passover, the Feast of Passover. We're familiar with Passover. Matter of fact, last week we we did together the the Lord's Supper. And in some sense, it gives you an idea of what that Passover feast is. The Passover feast has happened on the 14th day of Nisan. Now, the calendar for the Jews is a moving calendar, so it's hard to put a date um, as far as we're concerned here on on our calendar. But you notice it always falls somewhere late March, early April. April range. This this day of Pentecost feast would be in that, that range. It was, it was a feast of remembrance when the children were in bondage, if you remember. They were in bondage and, and Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not let them go. No matter what had approached him, he had reneged, he wouldn't let them go. He kept them captive. And God told the people of, of Israel, his people that were in bondage said, People, have a feast. Remember what the feast was. They were to take a lamb. They were to take a lamb, and they were to Kill that lamb. They were to place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lintel of their home. On the doorpost and the lintel of their home, they were to prepare. They were to prepare that lamb, and they were to eat all of that lamb. And they were to eat that lamb with unleavened bread. And bitter herbs and spices, if you remember. The bitter herbs and spices was to remind them of the fact of their bondage. And if you remember, there was unleavened bread that was significant in the fact that they were not to take anything with them from that country that was recognized as sin. And then there was that lamb, that lamb that was slain. And if you remember back in Exodus 12, they were told as they did this, that they were to do it dressed to leave. Remember, they were told that they should have their belt on, they should be girded up, they should have sandals on their feet, they should eat with their staff in their hand because God was preparing them for an exit. And it could be at any moment. It could be at any moment this exit could come and they were to eat this feast with great anticipation that God was going to remove them from the bondage they were in and they needed to be ready to go. Reminds me of New Testament passages when he says, don't let go of the plow and look back. You don't have time to go back and say goodbye to your parents. You don't have time to go bury the dead. When I call you, it's time to go. And he was telling them, be prepared. Be prepared. And it says they were to eat it in haste, quickly. What's the significance of the feast? That night, that night of the feast, judgment was going to fall, was going to fall on Egypt. The death angel was going to pass through. And the only way the death angel wouldn't stop at their house is if the blood showed up on the doorpost and the lintel. When the death angel came to the house that had the blood on the doorpost and lintel, it would pass over, leaving the firstborn in that home alive, yet killing the firstborn of all others, not covered in the blood. You can make the connection. It's simple. He says, hence that's the term for the Passover. God had given them instruction on how to do it. He had said it's this blood that's on the doorpost and the lintel that makes all the difference in death visiting. All the difference. We recognize that this is a foretelling of Jesus Christ. We can look at the picture of that feast and realize it's a foretelling of what Jesus Christ did for us. Remember I said even the Pentecost feast the Pentecost time had a semblance, or a resemblance of something Christ did. Here we start with the very first feast, and you can see the picture of Jesus Christ in it. You can see the picture, how he would be our sacrificial lamb, how we would have the doorpost and lintel of our heart, so to speak, covered with the blood that flowed from the cross from his wounds that washes away our sin, how that, that blood applied to our life that flowed from Jesus Christ causes the eternal death angel to pass over and provides for us eternal life. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the Passover. See, and as part of this feast, it says that there would be seven days of unleavened bread that immediately followed this feast. As they exited, they would take this unleavened bread with them. This unleavened bread represented leaving behind the sin, the, the, the problems of Egypt and leaving with this unleavened bread. It reminded them that they were to leave the past in the past and not take the things of Egypt with them. They were only to follow God and where he was going. See, this represents for us repentance of our sins and leaving the old things behind. See, when you cover the doorpost and lintel of your heart with the blood of Jesus Christ, you're to repent of those things that got you into position to need a Savior, which is called sin in your life, and you're to leave those things in the past. That's why repentance means turning away from. Turning away from. See, we're to leave those things. And let me ask you this. Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins. Does anybody remember the day he hung on the cross and what significance it had to the Jews? It was the day of Passover. Do you remember? The day that Jesus hung on a cross to die for your sins was Passover. There's some significance to those feasts. So we see that day of the Passover. So the first feast was the Passover the day Jesus Christ died on the cross. The second feast is the First Fruits feast. The First Fruit feast, very quickly. The First Fruits feast is the first fruits of the barley harvest, the first fruits of the barley far harvest. It took place really during the Feast of the, the Unleavened Bread. It was kind of in conjunction with that. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast that started immediately after Passover. The first fruit started just a couple of days after that. And the first thing they did in the feast was they went out into the barley field. The, the farmer sent those out into the barley field and said, hey, pick a few uh, sheaths from over here. A few, uh, Pluck a few from here. Pluck, pluck a few from this part of the field. Pluck a few from that part of the field. And, and gather those up. Gather all those up into a sheath and, and, and bring those those to me bring those sheaves to me that I may look at it the idea the idea behind the first fruit was the farmer knew that the barley harvest is getting really close really close to being time really close to time to be picked and he determined if it was ready that he would select a sample from here and a sample from there and have them bind it up and bring it to him and and he could look at those samples and say you know what Yes, that part of the field's ready, and yes, that part of the field's ready, and yes, that part of the field's ready, and and all these parts are ready, so the field itself must be ready for harvest. He could gather together to do that. And, and what he did as part of this first fruits gathering, this offering, this feast, it came that each of those sheaves were bound together in a sheaf, and he offered them to the Lord for what God had done in providing for him this harvest and what God was going to do in making that har- harvest bountiful, this, this first fruit. So the, the first of the fruits that come out of the field, he was offering to God and saying, God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for what you have done. It's interesting that the prescription of the feast in Leviticus tells us that they were to bind those together in a particular sheaf, a particular sheaf. Each of those bundles were to be bound together. I find it interesting because it's a picture. It's a picture of the fruits being associated together, but still having distinction. He was able to tell this came from this part of the field, and this came from this part of the field, and this came from this part of the field. Even though they're all one field, there's some distinction in each of those things. Each piece from the field held its own individuality. Each piece from the field still had its own uh, personality, so to speak. So what's significant about the first two feasts? What's, what's significant about those things for us? If you remember the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, you remember the time when he had died, the time when he rose again. Highlights in his story, so to speak. His death was on the Passover. His death was on the Passover. His resurrection, three days later, was on the start of the first fruits. Interesting now, isn't it? It's interesting that he would die on the feast of Passover and rise again on the day of the start of the feast of first fruits. That should make some connections for you. If you remember anything about John 12, 24, Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth fruit. He said that that for fruit to be brought forth, it must The old fruit must die and be buried into the ground and it would bring forth more fruit. Jesus himself said that he would die and that he would bring forth more more fruit. If you remember Paul over in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he said, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Aren't you glad there was a first fruits harvest? You see, because he's become the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who are going to rise from the dead. He is the guarantee that we will one day rise from the dead if we have placed our faith in what he did for us on the cross. We will not be conquered by death. We will not spend an eternity in a place called hell. We will rise again because Jesus rose again. We will have eternal life because he's the first fruit. See, he died on Passover that death may pass over us. He rose in the first fruit that we might have life for all of eternity. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Second, it reminds us that even though we're all saved one way by Jesus Christ, that we all have a tendency to have our own individual personalities. And being bound into sheaths shows our individual personalities. Being bound together shows that we're put together. But somewhere within that, there is still the individual personalities. All the way through Acts chapter 1, that's the way the body of Christ operated, so to speak. It's the way the body of Christ operated. There was no blending of that. There was the sheaves. And then we come to where we are in Acts chapter 2, and we start this third feast called the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks happened 50 days after the rising from the dead, after the Passover, after the time that... The other that started 50 days later. It was also the time that they celebrated the giving of the law, by the way. The giving of the law was also separated at that same time. It was also another first fruits. It was the first fruits of the wheat harvest. First fruits of the wheat harvest. A lot of things were agricultural with them. And even though it was the first uh, fruit feast, it was prescribed to be done in a very different manner. Leviticus 23.17 tells us, You shall bring forth from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of ephah. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. It's kind of interesting. We had the Passover. No, no leaven. We had the first fruits that brought all those things together, but there was no loaf in it. And now in the third one, it says there are to be these, these loaves that are made with leaven. It ends that 17th verse of Leviticus 23 by saying, They are the first fruits to the Lord. The first fruits to the Lord. The loaf was to be baked with leaven. This is a beautiful picture of what takes place at Pentecost. A beautiful picture of what takes place at Pentecost, especially in regards to the church. See, the first fruits harvest was individual stalks of sheaves put together. Yet in the Feast of Weeks, those individual stalks were ground into flour and baked into a loaf. They were baked into the loaf. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? Instead of the individuality of each person gathered together, now we are all bound as one in a loaf. There's no way to pick out which part of the loaf came from which part of the field. We're all one big loaf. There is no individuality of stalks. They were blended together. They were also baked with leaven. (laughs) Also baked with leaven. There's a reason for that. When the Passover took place and when the first fruits took place, there was to be absolutely no leaven in any of that. There's a reason. They represented what Christ did for us. Leaven in the Bible represents sin. In Christ, there is no sin. There is no sin. Here, the first weeks represents what Christ is going to do with believers in forming the church. <laughs> and how many of you know, even though we've all been saved by the grace of God, somehow in our life, there still is a little bit of leavened. There's still a little bit of leaven, and it's a picture at Pentecost that even though you're going to be joined together as one loaf in God, there's still going to be leaven that has to be dealt with. That's why God promises in John, 1 John 1.9 that if you'll come to him with that leaven in your life and confess that leaven to him, he is gracious to forgive you of that leaven, to remove that from your heart. See, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost as it's called there in Acts, uh, is a representation of what took place at Pentecost with the believers who were gathered there. As they waited on the Holy Spirit to come, they daily spent time going about doing their business, but they spent time fellowshipping. They they didn't pray for the Holy Spirit to come. They didn't beg God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have special meetings. They stayed and they waited. No, in, in God's time, He chose to send the Holy Spirit to them. In his time. And why is this fact so important? Passover represented what Christ did for us. Vardi have already said that on the cross to guarantee our deliverance from sin. The first fruits feast represented what Christ did to us to guarantee us eternal life by rising from the dead. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost represents the filling of the Holy Spirit that unifies the believers into the body of Christ, the church, and guarantees our final inheritance of a place called heaven. See the picture of Jesus and all of these things? See, Jesus said one day that he will separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. (laughs) What's the guarantee that you're going to be with the sheep and not the goats? That you're going to be wheat and not tares. What's your guarantee? Jesus. What's the reminder of that guarantee? The Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.5 five says, Now he who was prepared for us, this very thing, is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit is the guarantee in our hearts that there's a day coming that we're going to be with God forever. He's the guarantee in our hearts that right now we are one body in Christ. He is the guarantee right now that Christ's death on a cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. He is that guarantee. Paul goes on to say in the 8th verse, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Why? Because of the guarantee of that Holy Spirit in our heart. You remember Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Puts a stamp on that for us and it says, In him you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. Who is the guarantee of your inheritance until redemption of the purchased possession? Why? To the praise of his glory. See, God has a plan to glorify himself. He has a plan to glorify Himself through you individually. He has a bigger plan to glorify Himself through the church. And He has a plan that's been put in place since eternity past that we're seeing fulfilled in the book of Acts and we're living out being fulfilled in our lives today. A plan that's been in place since eternity past. And nothing, nothing in this world can thwart that plan because God's sovereign. God's in control of all things. He alone has decided to do it through the church. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've been baptized into fellowship with the church, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are part of that church, which makes you part of that plan. It makes you part of that plan. Aren't you glad for God's providence? Aren't you glad? The question being this this morning Do you have the guarantee in your life? See, none of this matters if you first and foremost haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why every day that passes, it becomes more and more serious in my life to make sure you understand that salvation is nothing to play with. Nothing to play with. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed another breath. There's only one, day, one way that you can be guaranteed eternal life, and that's by having Jesus Christ, His blood, applied to the doorpost and lentils of your heart because He died on a cross for your sins, and you've accepted that gift of what He has done. And that you've accepted that gift and said, God, I can't do it. I need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. God applies the blood of Jesus Christ to the sins of your life and washes you as white as snow. But there's a part you must do in that. You must be willing not to just accept him as Savior, but he has to be Lord of your life. See, there's a plan to be worked out. And only through the Lordship of Christ will that plan come true in your life. Only will you walk in fellowship with Christ if he is the Lord of your life. What sets the Lord of your life in motion in your life? It is the repentance of sin, the turning away from, the the due diligence to not go back to where you've been, to leave the leaven of Egypt in Egypt and to move forward, move forward with the unleavened bread with your, your waist girded, your sandals on, your staff in your hand, looking to what God has planned for you and not worrying about those things that you so endured and loved before you found Christ, leaving those behind and letting the only love of your life be Jesus Christ. See, that's what it means to be in love with Him. That's what it means to have Him Lord of your life. That's what it means to hold firm to the guarantee. That what is the guarantee? The guarantee, as He said in Ephesians, He's guaranteeing to you until the day He comes to purchase you and take you home, the guarantee is that promise of the Holy Spirit that's in you that has sealed your life, that has put the stamp of God's seal on your life saying, You're mine. You're mine. And at the end of the day, you're going to be with me forever. What is the guarantee? The guarantees the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It starts with the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I beg you this morning. I don't know any other way to put it. I beg you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't leave this place until you do. Because we know life is short. Life is extremely short, and there's no list, there's no second chances. There are no second chances. Maybe this morning you know Jesus is Lord and Savior, but you can't with all confidence say that he is Lord of your life, that you've taken the reins back, that you're doing things your way. That guarantee is still in your life. The Holy Spirit is still there. But you've grieved the Holy Spirit and the power that comes, the comfort that comes, the unity that comes, the understanding that comes with fellowship with the Holy Spirit is not there because you haven't turned over the lordship of your life to Jesus Christ. You can't figure out why you're still miserable as a Christian. Let me tell you why. Because you're trying to be God in your life and you're not. Jesus Christ has to be the Lord of your life. If he calls you to do things that are uncomfortable, you do them. If he calls you to go places you're uncomfortable, you go. If he calls you to spend time you'd rather be sitting on a couch or sleeping to love on someone, you go love on them. Because I can stand in this pulpit and tell you, God will give you the strength to do the things he asks you to do. He'll give you the understanding to do things you don't know how to do. He'll give you the strength to make it another day if you're doing it for His glory. Maybe this morning you can honestly say, you know what, I don't live that way and I am miserable. You know, it's time to come before. You're not going to be breaking any news to Him. You're not going to be telling Him you're miserable and Him going, phew, I hadn't seen that. No, He knows. You know what He's waiting on? You to be humble. You to be broken. You to come before Him before He chooses to break you. And the day will come. Trust me, the day will come. The day will come where he'll get your attention at all costs. Why not come to him today and say, God, I'm sorry. I love you. I love you beyond all measure. And I turn over those reins. Not only are you my Savior, but you're my Lord. You know, God says that he is with the humble and leaves those that are proud behind alone, aside